Hepatic encephalopathy affects approximately 20% of patients each year with cirrhosis. With the increasing prevalence of chronic liver disease, health professionals need to be aware of how to recognise this condition. I'm joined today by Tim Cross, consultant hepatologist at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital and one of the authors of this week's clinical review, which looks at how health professionals can identify and manage hepatic encephalopathy due to liver cirrhosis. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Can, no can you start by telling us what is hepatic encephalopathy? Well, hepatic encephalopathy is uh, essentially a neuropsychiatric condition which arises as a, the complications of long-standing liver disease, uh, whereby the liver fails to get rid of toxins which are normally processed by the liver, and as a consequence of that, that generates uh, false neurotransmissions and causes confusion. How big a problem is it? It's, it's a rising problem, which we're sort of seeing more and more of, I think, particularly with the rising prevalence of liver disease across the UK, particularly parts of England like the northwest of England. It's something which we are seeing more often in the acute medical setting where people are admitted to hospital and being diagnosed with other conditions. And certainly subsequently when we dig into what the potential cause and spot abnormal liver tests and, and take a full history, that actually we find out that this is what the problem is. When should health professionals suspect this diagnosis? I think one of the one of the challenges is is like a lot of things in medicine it's actually it only becomes apparent if you actually think about the diagnosis in the first place so it's having something which which comes to mind in the first place so you know if you have fluctuating levels of consciousness or or drowsiness and you think there's a risk factors for liver disease such as a prior history of alcohol consumption, long-standing obesity with sort of diabetes or other risk factors for liver disease. I think it's at that point if you've got confusion with no other attributable cause, it's a diagnosis or something that we should think about. So when the GP is worried about this diagnosis, what can they do to confirm it? Well, if they're fairly confident in terms of sort of looking at this, I think often with hepatic encephalopathy you know it can be a mark of quite significant end-stage liver disease so I normally sort of say the first thing to do is probably to refer them to a liver specialist to get this looked at in a little bit more detail um, simple things that can be looked at would be um, just ensuring that the bowels are open and giving simple treatments like lactulose two to three times a day um, not diminishing the amount of protein in the diet which was something which was recommended previously but um, just seeing how we can manage the symptoms and potentially even consider liver transplantation where clinically appropriate. So when somebody comes to see you in secondary care with a potential diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy, can you take us through the workup and how you would initiate their management? Well, I think we'd, we, 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 sort of, we sort of break out the cause of encephalopathy into sort of um, obvious causes and more sort of uh, less identifiable causes. So what we call... Uh, covert encephalopathy where we can't find a precipitating cause and it's very subtle and overt encephalopathy where the, the manifestations are fairly clear. So I think what we normally do first of all is you know take a history, examine the patient, do some basic blood tests and look at the liver function tests and do an examination and then we'd look at various factors to see are there any things which could be leading to the uh, confusion or the encephalopathy. So certainly for patients we have with uh, hepatitis C with a prior history of drug use or with chronic pain uh, conditions we'd certainly review their medication and try and reduce or optimize any dose of opiates that they may be taking. So reduce the dose of methadone where we can, anything which could be constipating 
anything, any medications that can cause electrolyte disturbance, such as diuretics, we'd certainly be looking at those. And we'd be certainly trying to ensure that the bowels are open two to three times a day with uh, lactulose and sometimes optimizing other medications if we need to. Um, We'd also try and exclude other sort of causes which could be caused confusion. So not just looking at medications, but want to exclude infections, make sure there's no bleeding, but clearly that's something which may be more obvious. But also exclude any sort of uh, problems within the brain, such as space-occupying lesions or trauma or uh, chronic subdural hemorrhage. So imaging of the brain either by CT or MRI is something we'd also consider. You've touched on this briefly, but once hepatic encephalopathy is diagnosed, how is the condition managed? Um... Well, initially, we, we look to stop any things which could potentially causing causing in the first place. So, review the medications, ensure that the bowels are open, uh, treat any infections relatively quickly, um, if we can do that. But if all those sort of standard procedures don't work, the other medication which has really made quite a big difference recently is introdu- introduction of a non-absorbable antibiotic called rifaximin which we give at a dose of 550 milligrams twice daily. And a big study in the New England Journal of Medicine seemed to demonstrate that this reduced hospital admissions and was of clear benefit. However, if the patient is having, has had two admissions over the prior six months related to their hepatic encephalopathy, they would then fulfill criteria for liver transplantation and would then refer them to one of the liver transplant units for assessment. Uh, there are patients who... The treatments aren't particularly effective for reasons we don't know, and they're not liver transplant candidates. And I think the the ability to shift that emphasis of care from active treatment to a more holistic palliative approach to, to the patient is quite important. Uh, and that's something we're not very good at doing. Our pathways to liaise between the hospital setting, primary care and palliative care is certainly an area that we need to develop and a lot of the patients and their relatives do say to us actually we do sometimes struggle we don't know what to expect so good communication as always i think between those different carers would be really important and 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 sort of what to do when patients get confused towards the end of their lives and and how we manage that and, and preparing for end of life if we think about GPs who may have patients with long-standing episodes of hepatic encephalopathy on their list, how would you advise that they can help them to prevent further episodes and to optimise their health in the community? I, I think I'd encourage them to, um, once again, always review the medications, ensure that the bowels remain open, um, try and treat any infections as they come along, uh, and I think the other thing which it, which is important to note is actually, you know, to consider that actually there are things that can be done. So, you know, things like the rifaximin, there are other more advanced treatments, which we don't touch on in the review, uh, sort of interventional radiology, radiology procedures where we can uh, embolize collaterals, which could be allowing the sort of neurotoxins and all the all, all those products and protein products which haven't been broken down to bypass liver, they can be we can block those collaterals off to prevent that confusion from happening. Um, so, there, you know, there, there are plenty of things that can be done, but just, it's just simple things. Review the medication, check the electrolytes, make sure the sodium's not too low, ensure that the bowels are open, treat infections, and if there are any pain, uh, pain-relieving medications, either look to alternatives to the opiates um, or try to reduce a dose if that's not possible. Tim, thank you very much. 
Okay. I'm also joined today by Ralph Crawford, who has experienced hepatic encephalopathy firsthand. Ralph, thanks for joining us today. Okay. Can you start by telling me when you were diagnosed with hepatic encephalopathy? Well, um, it's, to use the uh, analogy of a journey, it was right at the very beginning. Um, although it was some time before um, we, it was made clear to us what was happening, uh, us being myself and my wife, Karen, who was my principal carer, um, because the confusion um, didn't just rest with me, it seemed to be with the medical profession as well, because um, I simply didn't know what was wrong with me, and nobody told me. Um, in fact, at one stage, we were left to guess um, what was wrong with, with me because of the obvious link with um, encephalopathy uh, via um BSE with, with, with um, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. I'd made the link after overhearing somebody on the telephone um, describing my conditions to somebody else and saying, we don't think he's encephalopathy. Um, but certainly there was no formal explanation made to me or my wife at any time until uh, I reached um, Tim's um, good officers. And uh, it was only then that um, we realised that it was a formal condition. If we think back to the very beginning, can you talk a little bit about the symptoms and signs that led you and, and your wife to think that something wasn't right? Well, yeah. Um, I've been ill for quite some time without any uh, specific um, realisation of what was wrong with me. And um, confusion became quite prominent and then anxiety and then memory loss and um a little bit of some bizarre behaviours and it, all of these things became worse and, in, and um, increased in their frequency um, over time um, to the point where my wife Karen could um, begin to predict when these episodes were starting to come on and do something about them. What did Karen notice? Well, in my case, and obviously I can only speak personally, um, there was some flapping going on with shaking. Um, I was holding my head. Um, <clears throat> oftentimes when I woke uh, from sleep, um, and um, some anxiety and strange behaviour, uh, as I've mentioned uh, in my story, you call it, um, of going downstairs to make her a cup of tea and coming back with a bread knife. <laughs> with no obvious explanation. Um, lots of strange behaviours um, which we just couldn't ascribe to anything. I think another one is uh, the smell. The, um, I, I was producing a smell I wasn't aware of. Um, Karen was and told uh, people about it and apparently it is um, an indicator. Um, it's a kind of smell of ammonia, maybe pear drops. Um, yes. And you mention it in the paper, the ammonia... Um, aspect of it. Yes, I mean it's it, it's something you know we see when we get. It, yes, you you do get it, but maybe Karen was kissing you more than I was, Ralph. Maybe that's what the factor was. <laughs> I knew you'd spill the beans. <laughs> <laughs> we could... She told uh, Professor Lombard at the Royal, who immediately said, "Thank you, somebody who's experienced it." Um, I tried to put this across to students, but it's very difficult to get them to understand. I think I, 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 
she mentioned pear drops or ammonia, and he mentioned mouse droppings. Now, where the correlation is there, I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, he was quite relieved to hear that as, a, obviously, a practitioner who uh, and a teacher. Um, so the smell was... Um, I, I didn't know. I wasn't aware of it at all. And you did mention that there was quite a delay between the onset of these symptoms and the actual diagnosis. How long, roughly, did it take for you to, to come to the diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy? Oh, I would say probably nine to 12 months, perhaps. So quite um, a long time. And in that time, did you did you go to see the GP or you know who was it that you presented to? Well, I think I have to be clear about uh, this. Uh, yes, I did go to my GP and, and I was treated initially at um, my local hospital uh, where the attitude and um, um, the attitude to my behaviours was a little bit um, worrying and um, certainly there was no solution available at that point in time. And um, I mean, I was confronted with a consultant saying to me, um, you've been drinking again? Which obviously isn't very helpful when you're in a state of utter confusion. You don't know what the hell's going on with you. Um, mm. So, yes, I went to my GP and he referred me to the local um, general hospital. But it wasn't until I went to the Royal at Liverpool that uh, things be- were made clear to me and uh, some drugs were administered and uh, uh, things began to improve, certainly from the point of view of realisation of what was wrong with me. Mm. We've talked a little bit about um, the the problems that you've had with, with some of the encounters with health professionals. Can you tell us a bit about if there are any aspects of the journey that you were on that you thought could have been handled differently? Oh yeah, I can tell you, Tim's mentioned a lot about bowel movement and um, uh, on one of the first occasions uh, I met with uh, healthy uh, um, people at, uh, in my local hospital and they were giving me some drugs and I was told to take some lactulose as and when I thought it was necessary. There was certainly no emphasis on how important it was. I mean, I realise it's a very important um, form of treatment, but uh, at that point, it was basically use it as and when you think is necessary, not um, an emphatic instruction to take it two or three or four times a day. And there was never any um, mention of the need to uh, be regular in terms of bowel movement. Um, uh, and nor was there any uh, advice with regard to enemas, nothing at all like that. So clearly, um, if I was constipated, um, it didn't signal a problem to me at all. Uh, there was no li- obvious link made by anybody um, until much later on. And I was just going to interrupt you, Rafa, if you if you wouldn't mind, just for a second. I think what you've touched upon is quite significant. The other thing we often see is a prejudice, which is often put towards patients with liver disease. Yeah. The assumption is always made, you know, as, as, as a sort of speciality, it's got an image problem because people say it's either alcohol-related problems or yeah. well, they've taken drugs or they've eaten too much, it's their lifestyle. So actually overcoming that barrier, uh, and I think, the, you know, as a patient, that's a real challenge and, and for liver specialists as well to say, actually, you shouldn't be doing that. We should be doing what's best for our patients. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. 
Ralph, if we think back as well to your treatment, you said that the laxatives really made a, a difference um, and, and that that helped you in, in the management. What, what other things have helped um, you to sort of control your symptoms? Well, um, what you have to consider is that um, as a patient, you, um, you really go from day to day. There's no regular aspect to um, the, the onset of these uh, episodes. You, it takes some time. You start to wonder whether it's your diet, um, whether it's uh, something that's uh, external influence, being maybe anxiety or something. Nothing at all um, is obvious. Um, but then as um, Karen, my wife, um, started to experience it, she could begin to predict um, um, when things were starting to happen. And basically the only treatment that we prescribed for ourselves was bed rest, um, and patients and nothing else well, uh, and enemas <laughs> she's mm-hmm. just done a mime of one for, for my benefit to remind me um, which um, again is something which requires a little bit of skill mm-hmm. um, and which has to be taught by the district nurse and that's extremely important because um, it's not something that people find very tasteful um, but it starts to become necessary and vital. And Ralph, can you tell me if you had any other interventions while in hospital? Uh, well, the refactoring, I think, is an important yeah. factor that uh, Tim mentioned. Um, I was placed on it the first time I appeared at the Royal. I'd never had it before, and um, various remedies have been tried, but that certainly uh, seemed to help. Um, and did help me um, to stabilise, at least. Um, the lactulose, certainly, it's very unpleasant stuff to take, in my opinion, but um, it's an absolute necessity and should be encouraged um, as a matter of course. Um, dietary advice was something I wasn't given until the very later stages. Um, whether it's appropriate or not, it's uh, certainly a, a factor that needs to be considered. Um, oh, and the CTs as well, um, we've not been mentioned at all. Mm-hmm. Again, that's unpleasant but uh, necessary and um, something that you're not expecting to happen but uh, is, is, again, vital. I mean, it, it, it's one of, the, one of the other manifestations of mm-hmm. the liver not working properly. So, yes, it's, it's not directly associated no. with the encephalopathy per se, mm-hmm. but if you've got ascites, you're more at risk of getting uh, you are more at risk of getting encephalopathy. We know that if if you've got the ascites, you know when we put the drain in, you lose protein, you lose muscle mass. That also increases your risk of encephalopathy as well. So actually, you're quite right, Ralph. All these things are interrelated. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and also the other thing as well with the ascites, the fluid in the tummy. If that gets infected, that will precipitate the encephalopathy. And if yeah. we give and if we give you the diuretics to try and keep the fluid down, that can also precipitate the, the encephalopathy episodes as well. So actually, you're you're walking a tightrope, you know, with the ascites or with the confusion, because actually, by your interventions, you can make things worse, not better. And I think that's a really valid point. Mm-hmm. You, you've mentioned your wife a few times and how she supported you um, whilst you were whilst you were going through your treatment and, and coming to the diagnosis. I know in your story you talk a bit about the importance of, of considering the carers as well. Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit more about that? 
Absolutely. I mean, one of the principal problems, I think, is that when you're in, in, an inpatient and you're suffering from this, this terrible situation, um, people come to talk to you, um, clinicians and uh, nurses and so on, and they talk to you about what you're experiencing and what might be causing it, and you naturally want to tell your carer about that when she arrives, but she can only come at visiting times, and... So in my case, I would write things down and try to remember um, things, but um, it becomes an impossibility. You can't remember what to say. Um, you write things down, but your handwriting is completely legible, and my hand's usually fairly reliable. Um, so I think it's very important to in involve the carer in the discussions that take place about the way the person needs to be treated. Um, because obviously you're not in hospital forever, you need to go home and that uh, care needs to be extended to the home. And if the person's lucky enough as I was um, to have a carer, then that person needs to be involved. And I think also you can start to, I think they should be told um, what they might expect to happen right at the onset, even though it might not occur. I mean, obviously it did with me, but with, in, and in some patients it might never happen. But one of the things that um, maybe carers uh, and patients should be told from the very beginning is this might happen, expect to look, look for this, um, avoid constipation and so on and so forth. So that leads really nicely into, I was just going to ask if you could sum things up by giving doctors who may not be that familiar with seeing patients with hepatic encephalopathy a few tips from your experience on how they might help patients a bit better. Well, I think they could um, emphasise the need for um, uh, bowel movement. I mean, that seems obvious, but um, in my case it didn't happen. Um, they should maybe be asked to keep a diary of um, behaviours. So to help the carer understand what's been going on. Things which don't make sense might make sense to a clinician who can then uh, interpret it for the benefit of the carer and the patient. Um, maybe they could keep a diary on uh, bowel movement in itself. I started to do that because um, it, it worried me if... Uh, one one, actual, one um, registrar told me I should be going to the toilet 15 times a day and that's not an exaggeration, and it's not a product of my faulty ability to understand. It's, it, it was actually said, and that's excessive, obviously, but um, certainly regularity should be recorded, or lack of. Um, so that's, And th another point that was mentioned in the paper, which I was very strongly in favour of, was um, to report the matter to the DVLA um, from the point of, pr very practical point of, people with uh, HE should not be driving the vehicles. Um, and, and that, as I said earlier on, that patients uh, who are seen in isolation maybe should be helped to explain matters or to have matters explained to the carer when the carer uh, appears usually at during visiting times. Great. Well, Ralph, thank you very much for joining us today. You've been listening to Tim Cross and Ralph Crawford talking about hepatic encephalopathy. You can read the full review, Hepatic Encephalopathy in Liver Cirrhosis, on the BMJ.com.